say that you alone deserve the glory. No celebrity, no, no human structure or earthly ideology. Nothing else. We come here to worship you and you alone. You're the one who we invest everything in. And we lift your, your name high in our praise, in our worship, in this building, in our lives, to give you the glory that you deserve, Lord. Amen. Can I invite you to, to take a seat? Well, good, good morning. Good morning to anyone who is watching this online and good morning to anyone who's listening to the podcast. That's, that's a thing now, is it? Everything's changed. So I think there are some unfamiliar faces to me. So just by way of quick introduction, my name's Mark. I was a member of this church uh, for a number of years um, before the Lord called me to Cardiff um, earlier, earlier this year. But it's it's really good to be back and uh, really honoured uh, to be able to bring the words to you this morning. So I want to start with a question, which is, um, how many of you are old enough to remember the Millennium Celebrations? And it, it makes me feel old that I even have to ask that question, but here we are. So 24 years ago, like most of the world, we, we as a country, um, were all systems go how we were going to mark the occasion, even though, let's be honest, it was nothing more than going from the year starting with a one to the year starting with a two, but it was also exciting to us. And I think in, in that anticipation and hubbub, we took leave of our senses a little bit. And we, uh, we decided to embark on what, looking back, were some quite harebrained schemes, one of which was um, the Millennium Bridge in London. It's just a pedestrian footbridge across the Thames. Not sure what that has to do with marking the Millennium. Heady days, as I say. It took almost two years to build. It cost about £18 million. It opened a great fanfare in June. 2000. It was meant to be able to support 5,000 people crossing it at one time. But the problem, which they discovered on day one, was that it wobbled alarmingly, not so much like crossing the Thames on foot, more like crossing the Thames in a rickety boat, such was the sway from side to side. And because there was fear that the whole thing may come crashing down into the water, they were forced to close it just two days after it opened, and it stayed closed for another two years while the structural engineers figured out what was going on. And um, eventually it was discovered that what was happening was um, whenever there was a slight sway on the bridge, pedestrians took a step to the side to correct their balance. But because you had 5,000 people all doing this at once, all it meant was it just exaggerated the sway until it rocked like a cradle. Um, they came up with a solution eventually, it cost a few more million pounds, and now the wobbly bridge wobbles no more. But the point is that when we build stuff, we've got to make sure it has a solid structure, has a firm foundation, 
Otherwise, when it runs up against the challenges, the pressures, the demands of being in the real world, it will wobble like wobbly bridge. It will show its weak points. Might look great on artists' impressions, but that means nothing if it can't handle the rigors of what it's been designed to do. Just as it is with engineering and buildings, so it is with the Christian life. Um, in fact, the Bible is full of these illustrations taken from the world of construction uh, and then applied to communicate um, timeless truths, uh, such as the story we're going to look at today. It's a story that Jesus tells. It's all about how we need a firm foundation, not just for our buildings and bridges, but more importantly, for our lives. Otherwise, when we run up against the trials and the difficulties that invariably we will come up against in this world, we might find ourselves starting to wobble a bit. And in fact, we might even discover that the things we built our life on are not at all sufficient to hold us steady when we're put under that kind of pressure. We might have spent years finely tuning our lives. It might look really great as an external appearance. It might have taken up a lot of our resources. But what does all that mean when we experience a sudden loss or a hurtful rejection or a relationship situation that starts to spiral out of control? What we need is something solid to stand on, something secure, something that won't let us down, not something that will just wobble wildly. So this story that Jesus tells, we can find it in two places in the Bible. One is in the Gospel of Matthew, the other is in Luke's Gospel. They're essentially the same story. There are some slight differences, um, just as way of explanation. That would be our normal expectation. Jesus was a traveling teacher. So we can easily imagine that he'd retell the same stories to different audiences in different locations. He might tweak a few details along the way, um, especially when the story is as good as this one. I'm gonna um, read from Matthew's version and it's taken from the end of chapter seven, which is also the end of uh, a section of that book that we'll often know as um, the Sermon on the Mount. So it comes right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Quite a short passage, so I'll read it uh, in the NIV, then I've got another translation for you, but the NIV is the one that will be up on the screen. So this is Jesus speaking. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. 
and then to put that in other words don't build your house on the sandy land don't build it too near the shore well it might look kind of nice but you'll have to build it twice you'll have to build your house once more you better build your house upon a rock make a good foundation on a solid spot other storms may come and go but the peace of God you will know if you didn't remember the millennium you're probably not going to remember that song either I want us um, to home in on three aspects of this foundation that Jesus encouraged us to build our life upon and the first one is that it is a rock solid foundation if I'd read to you the version of the story that appears in Luke's gospel one of the differences we would have noticed is that Jesus describes the wise man not just as someone who builds his house on the rock but as someone who digs down deep and builds his foundation on the bedrock his foundation isn't um, created by dumping some concrete in a hole this is using the earth's own rock layer as his basis and that's going to be a strong surface right in fact you can't get much sturdier than that how many failed builds in grand designs could have been avoided if they'd laid their foundations by digging all the way to the bedrock rocks are symbols of security bedrocks even more so but we need to catch a hold of a further element of this story that Jesus is pointing out for us. Many of the first hearers of this story, if they knew their scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, would have understood it instantly that Jesus wasn't just referring to rocks that you would see on the landscape. He was also indicating a very well-established image of God himself. So in the Old Testament, when God's people, when the people of Israel wanted to convey just how dependable, how unshakable, how faithful their God Yahweh was, they would call him the rock. They would say, Yahweh is our rock. You can see it first in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. God is called the rock of Israel. Uh, King David loves this imagery. Uh, he sings out praises to God in words that might be familiar to us. He says, the Lord lives, praise be to my rock, exalted be my God, the rock, my savior. What he's saying to us is that the God who comes to rescue us when we're in times of trouble, the God who delivers us out of danger and into security, the God who claims us as his own, the God who takes us away from fear and puts us in his place of peace, that's God the rock. David composes a load of the Psalms. He says, truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress and I will never be shaken. It seems for as long as people have been in the middle of the storm and calling out to God, they've discovered that he is absolutely, resolutely rock-like in his nature and in his actions. So 
when we trust in him, it's not like setting foot on a wobbly bridge, unsure whether it's gonna come crashing down into the waters below. It's like drilling a foundation into the very bedrock of the earth itself. That's how strong he is. That's how dependable he is. And it's funny that we often reach for other words when we want to describe what God is like. We say God is love, popular one that is. God is trinity, God is infinite. But I'm drawn to the sermon that Moses preaches um, just at the end of the time when he's led Israel through the wilderness and they're on the very border of the promised land and he wants to reinforce in them what God is like. It's a sermon you can read in the book of Deuteronomy over and over and again. The words he'll use to describe rock, God is rock. In fact, he stops calling God God at all and just calls him the rock with a capital R. There's, there's a writer uh, and Bible teacher, Andrew Wilson, who puts it like this. He says, we describe God as the rock, not just because rocks exist and they, they provide a good picture of safety and security, Rocks exist because God is the rock, the rock of our salvation, the rock whose work is perfect and all his ways are just. Ever since the beginning, the surface of our planet has been covered with rocks and every one of them has been preaching a message of the faithfulness, security and steadfastness of God. There can be no surer foundation for our lives than the foundation that is the rock with a capital R, building on that rock, because he's been the stable, solid support for God's people every time they go through trial. So the first thing that we need to know about this foundation is that it's secure. The second thing is that it endures, it lasts, it remains, it prevails. Uh, my sister has recently moved house and during her move, uh, she sent me a photo of one very important item that had been packed up and ready uh, to move in amongst all the furniture and dozens of boxes ready for the removal van, was Alison, her childhood teddy bear. I'm sure many, many of you will have kept hold of your favorite childhood toy or teddy that you take with you everywhere, no matter where you go, no matter how old you get. Alison, I guess, has been around for more than 30 years. She'll have traveled up and down the country, hugged to within an inch of her life. And she is actually holding up pretty well in the circumstances, but often these favorite possessions become a bit tatty, might lose an ear or two. A bit of stuffing starts bursting out of one of the arms. We call it well-loved. Because, you know, if, if we want anything to stick around for more than a few years, they're going to have to weather a few storms along the way. Teddy will get chucked into a cupboard or shoved down the side of a bed, dropped in a puddle, go for a few spins in the washing machine. That's a lot for Teddy to endure. No wonder they will show signs of wear and tear. The houses that were being built in Jesus' story had to endure a fair, fair few storms as well. Not gentle ones either. Listen to how Jesus describes these storms. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Storm Debbie was pretty bad when I was driving across the Prince of Wales Bridge, but it has nothing on this. The nature of life in this world is that these storms are going to come, plenty of them, and not gentle ones. And whether you're here and you're listening to this as a follower of Jesus or not, I think you've got to agree with him when he says that we have a choice of where we build our house, we can build it on this rock, build it on that beach, but we cannot choose when the storms are going to strike or how strong they will be when they come. But they will strike, it's a certainty, and house, how our houses hold up in the middle of those winds will reveal how good our foundations are. Four years ago, none of us could possibly have imagined what was going to unfold with the arrival of COVID. No one would have thought that we'd spent, spent sizable chunks of the next year or two shutting doors, not allowed to see friends, having to work out Zoom, not allowed to come within two meters of people when we were finally permitted out not allowed to give our loved ones a hug. No one saw that storm coming, but it did. Couldn't avoid it. And when it did, what were your foundations like? Did your house feel secure? Did it start to wobble? The point of having foundations is not that they act as a kind of force field preventing us from experiencing the storm. We're going to experience it. The winds will blow and beat against us. The point of foundations is that they prevent us collapsing when the storm strikes. So if we build on a rock it's not our exemption from the storm, it's our protection through the storm. And Jesus gives us this promise that if we choose a rock solid foundation, it's going to last, it will stay with us, it will endure, it will go the course. Foundations won't show signs of wear and tear, no matter how much they have to resist. They won't become weak and cracked and need replacing, even up against gale force winds or flash floods. One house in the story didn't make it, but the house on the rock did not fall, said Jesus, because it had its foundation on the rock with a capital R. So it seems to me that in telling this story, Jesus is actually giving us sort of binary choice, one thing or the other, and asking a pretty blunt and examining question, which is, where are you going to build? Which plot of land do you want to choose? We've got the option of this rock solid, 
long-lasting foundation over here or this sandy, flimsy foundation over here? And which one is the best basis for building a house? This one, the rock-solid one, that seems like a good choice. So given that, the follow-on question is how practically do we start building on this? What does it mean to build that kind of a house? One that will stay standing in the storms that are going to come. It's like this, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus says two radical things here. Other Jewish teachers of the time would say something like, you build on the rock by reading the Torah, reading the, uh, the instruction that God has set forward in his words. But Jesus, unlike other Jewish teachers, he says that it's his own words that we need to pay attention to. It's quite a claim he's making. And in the immediate context of where we read this passage, Jesus is talking about the, the Sermon on the Mount that if you want to read, you'll find it in Matthew's, Matthew chapters five to seven. It's Jesus' kingdom manifesto that outlines his mission and his vision for the world. But it actually goes wider than that because everything that Jesus says that's been recorded for us in the Gospels is equally worthy of our attention, not just those three chapters. Although I think we could even go so far as to say that since all of the scriptures point to him, we could say that all of the words of the Bible are in effect Jesus' words, these words of mine that we need to pay attention to. And the, the second radical claim that Jesus makes is that we don't go about building on this foundation of his words by simply living to, listening to him or even by believing in him. The one who is building on the rock is the one who takes Jesus' words into their heart and puts them into practice. It's the one who puts Jesus' words at the center of all their thoughts, all their plans, all their decisions, all their habits. It's the one who will obey even when it's uncomfortable or it's countercultural. It's the one who surrenders their will when Jesus asks them to walk this way. It's the one who allows Jesus to take the lead and then faithfully follows him. And dare I say, that kind of uncompromising obedience to the words of Jesus may have fallen out of favor in parts of the church, especially in our comfortable, affluent Western surroundings. Sometimes it feels like we'd rather do anything than what Jesus calls us into. There are churches that refuse to compromise on what time their Sunday service will start but will readily compromise on the words of Jesus. 
There are a few churches that refuse to compromise on the quality of the sound system or what people who stand up here have to wear, but will readily compromise on obedience to Jesus. And all we're doing as a church when we behave like that is offering the world a flimsy foundation instead of the rock solid foundation that Jesus wants us to have for our lives and wants us to offer to those who don't yet believe in him. The world doesn't need another flimsy foundation. There are plenty of them to be found elsewhere. And I have to tell you, I really believe that people are longing for the church to provide them with something better than what they can find anywhere else. They want something substantial, not something trivial. So we can't lose sight of the substance of Jesus' message. Following Jesus as our master is at the very center of our USP. In fact, it's the best that we have to offer. So my wife, Sarah, and I, uh, we were fortunate to visit New York very recently. And as we were traveling around the city, we saw plenty of churches, but very few of them gave the impression that the major uh, emphasis of what they were about was following Jesus. It didn't come up in their advertising. Instead, all their signs and invitations seemed to indicate that they were concerned more about the politics of the city than the proclamation of Christ. But then we visited St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cathedral. It's a grand Gothic church in the center of Manhattan. It's not far from the Rockefeller Center, if any of you have been to New York and are familiar. And as soon as we got inside, it felt different, and not just different to the other churches, but different to the city that we'd experienced with all its impatience and hurry and grumpiness. Different too to the Rockefeller Center just up the road, where all its elaborate artwork seemed to be directing the worship of visitors towards the gods of Greek mythology. But the cathedral was unashamedly about the glory of God. And in response, visitors acted in reverence and, and quietness and humility. Some sat in thoughtful silence. Others lit a candle. Others knelt in a side chapel and just offered up their own prayers and worship. And as we were there taking it all in, Sarah turned to me and said, I understand why people come to places like this when they're desperate. And she's right. When God is shown to be big and real, like he was to us in that cathedral, we might feel small, but we feel safe. And this is what people need. This is what people need when they're going through a storm. They need a church that believes in something that's big and real. A church that has built its foundations on something that's gonna last. A church that demonstrates through the way that we live our lives that we believe in something, that we believe in who Jesus is 
because we listen and we do what he says. We need to show people that we've got something of substance to offer them. We need to show people that there is a firm foundation. There's not just the other flimsy foundations that they might have experienced elsewhere. We've got the only firm foundation that there is, and it's taking Jesus seriously. It's not about, you know, exalting our words, our ideas, putting a Jesus sticker on top of them. It's about exalting him. It's about pointing to him as we did in worship this morning. And then encouraging people to trust in him and obey him. He has the words of eternal life. His teaching sets us on solid ground. When, when the major storms of life hit, I don't think that the people of New York go to offer up their prayers at a Broadway show. They don't sit and quietly meditate at one of the city's fine dining restaurants. You'll find them on their knees in places like St. Patrick's Cathedral, a place where they come when they're desperate because they need to know that there's something more. They need to know that there's something bigger and more secure, more than any of the passing fads that New York is expending its energy on. And if you want New York or Bristol or Cardiff or, or any of our cities to really take the church of Jesus seriously, then we need to get serious about putting the words of Jesus into practice. And I'm not talking about a sort of rote obedience or a, a boring duty. I'm talking about us living inside the whole story of scripture that points and leads and finds its fulfillment in Jesus as the one who has come to rescue us, to give us the hope of a brighter future and whose world, whose kingdom is breaking in now through his people. But this isn't just for everyone else out there. We need to hear Jesus's message for our own lives for our own benefit too. For me personally, the last few weeks have been quite stormy, particularly in the life of my church family. One moment, you think you're in the middle of calm blue skies, and the next, it's like hurricane season. I'm sure I'm not alone. There will be people here, I'm certain, who are really feeling the buffeting of those winds. So perhaps today is a good day to do some <clears throat> foundation excavation, to think again, whose words are we paying attention to? Whose teaching is shaping us and forming us? Whose example are we following? You may think that following Jesus isn't as instantly attractive an option as the lifestyle that is presented to us in, in media or in, in TV adverts, and you might be right. It's certainly not as popular an option as the, as the lives that most of our friends and family have chosen. But a life that's been built up over the years, over the decades, by taking Jesus at his word. It's not futile, 
It's not wasted. It's not a life that's going to be forgotten. And in fact, what you will discover, what I've discovered, what I'm sure many of us here have discovered, that it's the only way for us to build a life that's going to stay standing. A life on the rock with a capital R. I'm going to pray and then either the band's going to come up or, or, or Jane and, and will lead us as we, we respond. Jesus, our teacher, our king, our friend. Today, we want to say afresh that we choose you. That we want to listen to what you have to say to us through your word, by your Holy Spirit. All the things that you've said to us through the years and the the immediate things that you're saying to us again this morning. We want to build our lives by taking you at your word and taking you seriously. And we thank you for your promise. We thank you that your foundation that you're giving to us will stay secure. We thank you that even in the middle of all these storms that are going on in our lives right now, that you've got us safe, that you're still our refuge, that we're not wasting our lives, that we're not alone or abandoned, but that you are holding us secure. Teach us again how to follow you and walk with us as we do, Lord. Amen.